Well, it looks like we got our Christmas decorations up and the trees decorated from Tuesday. So uh, just a reminder, on December 15th, we're going to have our annual Thanksgiving Christmas luncheon, and their sign-up sheets are now out in the fellowship hall so that uh, church provides the meat, and uh, that's for everyone to provide sides and desserts. Also, there's going to be the children's dedication during that time. As I said the other night, we have three families and four kids, so if there's any others, uh, let me know. And then I think Tuesday night, Christmas Eve, our service will be at 7 o'clock. So for all you live streamers out there, that's going to be a half hour early. That means if you're in California, that's 5 o'clock. And if you're on the uh, East Coast, that's going to be 8 o'clock. But that will give people time in our time zone, to come to church and then go home and do family things after after church. So, you know, I know what happens. See, some people are going to have their Christmas dinner Christmas Eve, and so the the wife is going to be home cooking, and the rest of the family hopefully will be here. When I went to the Rosh Hashanah service on Sunday evening back in September, I can't tell you how many men and their families were at the Rosh Hashanah service. I said, well, where, where's your wife? Oh, she's home cooking the meal. And I'll be going home afterwards. See, Jews aren't that different from Christians after all. Do the same thing. Stay home. Don't come to the church service or synagogue service. All right. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started this evening, we'll put our focus and attention upon the Lord. We need to recognize that we're all sinners. Our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Fortunately, the power of the sin nature has been broken at salvation, but its presence is still so ever, ever present. And so when we sin, we breach, we break that fellowship, that rapport, that intimacy with the Lord, walking with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking by the truth, and we have to recover. We have to confess sin, and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness so that we can continue to advance and grow spiritually. That's what we've been talking about in the last few lessons in our study of Second Peter. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this evening, we recognize that we live in a, in a dark, desperate world, a world that is without hope, a world that is walking in darkness. And we, as believers, shine forth or should shine forth as light in the midst of this wicked, perverse generation. Father, we pray that we might be challenged by your word, that the only way that we can truly shine forth is light and be seen as light is to walk in the light of your word and let that penetrate our souls to completely immerse ourselves in the word so that the word just permeates 
all aspects of our thinking. And by God the Holy Spirit, we're transformed from faith to faith, growth to growth, as we are conformed to the image of Christ. Father, we pray for our nation. We are in desperate need of a change, a change of thinking. We have conformed ourselves to the uh, thinking of Satan. We're walking in darkness. We're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. And the trajectory over the last 75 years has been in the same direction. And we desperately need a shift and turn. And the only real hope for us is your word. Father, we pray that we as believers will be involved, especially in local politics, voting, in national politics, voting. But that, if, while that is important, the only thing that will ultimately transform the nation is the truth of your word, for that is the basis for genuine freedom. Father, as we study tonight, help us to gain a greater appreciation for some things that we've learned in the past, uh, things that we will continue to study Help us to sharpen, tighten the focus of that which we have learned in the past that we may have a better perception of what you're saying in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Second Peter. Second Peter, and we're at verse 8. We have spent the last three lessons dealing with a topic, and that is the topic of spiritual life and bearing fruit, specifically because of what is stated in the first part of this verse. But in the second part of the verse, it states that we, um, that we can, if we walk by the Spirit, we will be neither unproductive nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, so we spent the last couple of, two or three lessons, I guess, studying what it means to bear fruit, to be productive. How does that happen? And now we're going to see that this is related to knowledge. And we've studied this before. We've had studies on knowledge. We've looked at the fact that there are these different words for knowledge in the Greek text, uh, gnosis and epinosis. And a lot of, there's a lot of questions about, well, what's the relationship between gnosis and epinosis? What does gnosis mean? What does epinosis mean? And many of us have been taught some details about this. And what I'm going to say tonight is not going to necessarily contradict, but it's going to refine. Some of you are going to have to unlearn some stuff. Others of you are going to uh, pay attention to some things that you haven't heard before in this discussion. And most of you will wish that you'd had three shots of, of uh, espresso before Bible class started tonight. So it's a test to see if you can stay awake and concentrate and think through what we're, what we're looking at tonight. So this is our passage. It starts off in 5 through 7. We went through these various virtues of the Christian life or, or the, these, uh, these character qualities that are developed as we walk by the Spirit. There are various places, as I pointed out in Scripture, where you have similar lists. They're not exhaustive, but they describe key ideas, key character qualities that we focus on that in application of Scripture. So when we apply Scripture, as we walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce these qualities in our lives. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen from year to year, 
But one day you wake up and you realize that there's been some maturity that's developed, that the Holy Spirit's produced some things in your life, and you're not doing the things that you used to do. You're not reacting to problems the way you used to react to problems. And that's spiritual growth. It it doesn't happen overnight. Some people have gotten the impression that, well, if I just confess my sin, it's going to boom, happen like that, and that's just mysticism, and that's not biblical. It's line upon line, precept upon precept. It's a little here, a little there. There's not a lot here, not a lot there. If you're not consistent, coming to class, studying the Word, reading the Word, week after week, day after day, it will take much, much longer because it takes time to immerse yourself in the world. And as Romans twelve two says, we're not to be conformed to the world around us, but we're born conformed to the world. We, we grow conformed to the world. It's probably not until we get into our 20s when most of our bad habits, mental habits, physical habits are well set before we begin to really get serious about the Word. And then we have to unlearn all those bad thought habits and bad action habits and bad verbal habits, which are just sin. And we have to start learning how to be disciplined in our walk by by the Spirit. So the first three verses we've looked at, 5, 6, and 7, focus on those qualities. And then in verse 8, Peter says, if these things are yours and abound. So if you're walking by the Spirit and these qualities are being produced in your life, Then he says, you won't be, and the word there, it could be translated lazy, irresponsible, unproductive. You're not going to be lazy, irresponsible, or unproductive because you've been walking by the Spirit, learning the Word, and applying the Word. And he says, nor will you be unfruitful. And we studied that fruit has to do with spiritual qualities and spiritual characteristics, and fruit isn't necessarily uh, producing fruit. converts. Uh, It's not how much money you make, how many people you bring to church, how many people are converted, uh, or how many people you give the gospel to. It has to do with that internal transformation into the character of Christ. And that this fruitfulness, this productivity, productivity is in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's really not the most helpful way to explain that in the Greek, from the Greek. But that's what we have in the New King James Version. And it's in the knowledge of our of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then next time we're going to get into verse nine, which is for he who lacks these things is short sighted, nearsighted, myopic. In fact the Greek word is the word from which we get the word myopic even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. And in these two, in these next verses, 9, 10, 11, we get into, these are, these are some proof texts for lordship salvation and that your assurance is based on the fruit that's in your life and not in the promise of the gospel. So we'll get into some, <clears throat> some interesting things there. But tonight is sort of a standalone explanation of dealing with this word knowledge that we have here, that we're not going to be uh, useless, lazy, unproductive, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the word down here in the lower right pane on the screen, epinosis. That's the noun, and it's the object of the preposition ace. Often when we see the word in in English, I-N, 
That is uh, frequently a translation of the Greek preposition en, which not always, but sometimes emphasizes means or instrumentality. And it would be easy to look at this in the English and say, well, we're not unfruitful or unproductive by means of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that would indicate that the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the epinosis, comes first, and then the fruit-bearing comes later. But it's sort of a reverse, because the process of growth involves getting knowledge, getting information. Uh, Under the Holy Spirit, you begin to understand what it means, and that takes time. It's not a matter of just hearing something saying, well, the pastor taught it, that's true. I would say 99.9% of the time when people listen to me and they think, okay, I agree with that, that's true, they don't understand it. It takes time to really think through these things. You have to go home, you have to meditate on the Word and think about it, and then God the Holy Spirit begins to build those connections. That's why you have Isaiah talking about line upon line, precept upon precept, it's here a little, there a little. It's, it's tiny steps. It's incremental. It goes from factual information, and then you have this other word, epinosis. And how does that relate uh, relate to gnosis? Well, the first thing we have to understand is what does this prepositional phrase mean? And it has the idea of uh, ace plus the accusative of a noun has the idea of sort of producing an ultimate goal, or it has the idea of in respect to or uh, with reference to, and probably the most clear way to translate this was, you will be neither unproductive nor unfruitful as you advance. See, that's what I have down here in the box. As you advance with respect to your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's this, it, it relates to this, this process, and that's built on this kind of knowledge. So let me just start going through this as we look at uh, just some basic information. You have these two words that we find in the New Testament. You have the Greek word epinosis. And this is a noun that occurs some 20 times in the New Testament. And uh, it's, it's, the verb form is, is much more than that, and I'll say something about that a little later on. The cognate noun, gnosis, is used 29 times in the New Testament. So that includes the Gospels and it includes, includes the Epistles. I didn't break it down in, in that way, but that's, that's how many times it's used. So you, what you do in understanding a word is you look at how it's used. You look at the grammar and syntax, each place it's used. You look at the objects of the noun, ob, uh, objects of the verb, uh, what's the noun related to, what other nouns are there. And it's, it's, um, it's really uh, kind of an interesting way to do it. Now, i got one slide out of order here because what we're going to see is something like this. Okay, is that gnosis is a broad term related to knowledge, related to facts, related to just information. But gnosis has a wide range of meaning. Every word does. And one of the big mistakes that has happened over the years is forgetting to 
to understand each word in its context. How many times do you hear me talk about context, context, context? A word in Romans doesn't mean the same thing necessarily that it means in Ephesians because the context is different. The author's using it in different ways. And this is a real problem. A lot of people just do a word study. They're, okay, this word means X, and then that's the meaning they see every time they see the word. How many times do you use words in so many, so many different ways? For example, think about the word trunk. What's a trunk? I bet five different definitions at least occurred to different people here. You could have the trunk of a car. You could have a large storage or travel thing like a suitcase, a, a trunk. An elephant's nose is a trunk. You can talk about with reference to a, a main line of, uh, for example, the telephone, you'd have a trunk line. The word has different meanings, but if you just see the word trunk by itself, you may come up with any number of different senses depending on your your background and what you're reading into it. So context is what gives those words a different meaning. So if it's the, even a, so, the same word can mean many different things in different contexts. Now there are some words that are technical, and these technical words like redemption and forgiveness and propitiation. These are words that always mean basically the same thing. They're technical words. But gnosis and epinosis are not technical words. They don't mean the same thing all the time. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. The reason I've, I've put them this way is gnosis can mean things like epinosis. And I, maybe somebody can think about this a little bit. Maybe I should have put them as external, as over overlapping circles and not concentric circles because sometimes epinosis means the same thing as gnosis and sometimes it means something different than gnosis. So it's it's really, but most of the time it's just a subset of gnosis because gnosis can be completely synonymous with epinosis at times and at other times it's not and you just have to look at the context and there's a huge amount of, of, of debate over this. And I think that, so I've got to go back to the slide where I was earlier because I'm going to get out of order here. So we come down here and we recognize that there's been, oh, let me give you another example. Uh, another example of how words change meaning. Hebrews 4.12. Most of you know it by heart, I think, for the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit. In that verse, soul, which is the word suke, and spirit, which is the word pneuma, are clearly distinguished. The word of God can distinguish between those two as two separate and distinct entities. And so as you've seen me teach, as we talked about re regeneration recently, that the human soul was originally created with three components, body, soul, and spirit. But there's a lot of theologians who will say, no, 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 no. All of these different words for the immaterial part of man are just, just they may emphasize different things, but they're used interchangeably. 
Well, see, those who taught a strict trichotomy often acted like spirit always meant the human spirit. But you have problems with that because in James 2.26, James says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. But that first part's what I'm looking at. As the body without the spirit is dead. Wow, that means that if I don't have a spirit, then the body's dead. Well, if you're going to def- interpret spirit there to be the human spirit, you're going to have a problem. If spirit always has to relate to the human spirit, that verse doesn't make sense. And you're going to run into somebody who says, how can you hold to the fact that we've got a separate soul and separate human spirit when you look at James 2.26? And you're going to go, oh, I don't know. See, there, these wor- this word pneuma isn't a technical term. In some places it refers to wind or air or breath. In other places it refers to just a thinking like a spirit of bitterness. It's an attitude. In other places it refers to a demon or an evil spirit. In other places it refers to something in the soul that is distinguishable from the from the or something in the in man that is distinguishable from the soul, so that soul and spirit can be distinguished. But in other places Soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Now, it's, it's possible that in James 2.26, that what James is saying, we talked about Neshema on Tuesday night as the breath of God, that God gives breath to man and he's alive. It's possible that instead of translating pneuma as spirit here, it could be translated as breath, which would make sense for as the body without breath is dead. That's, that's possible. But it could also be that the body without the immaterial part of man is dead. Either one of those would work. The point I'm making is that words can have a technical meaning in some contexts, and in other contexts they don't have a technical meaning. And that's what's true about gnosis and epinosis. And so we have to be careful because sometimes uh, people have taken gnosis and epinosis to always mean the same thing and... That's, that can't be substantiated. Now, there's been a lot of debate over this. So it's, it's, not, um, it's not unreasonable to recognize that, that scholars over the years have struggled with this, and pastors have struggled with this. And you'll hear some pastors who will say one thing, and you'll hear other pastors who will say another thing. What's interesting is if you plug those pastors in the time in which they were educated and the time in which they had their ministries, that and you look at the progress of our knowledge of language and meaning of words that they fit perfectly within the context of of the day in which they wrote or taught or or or, or were in school because of the development of the debate so i want to give you a little clue as to the debate that's gone on in terms of the meaning of this word because it will help us to think through what the bible is saying and what the word means so on the one hand, you had a man by the name of Bishop Lightfoot, okay? Joseph Barber Lightfoot, the Bishop of Durham. He was a remarkable Greek scholar. The Victorian education in classics in, and in biblical languages was phenomenal. In many cases, these men... Well, none of them had TV. They're not distracted by all this, all these distractions we have today. 
And by the time they were 16 or 17 years old, they were far more advanced in their understanding of the original languages than most doctoral students in Greek or Hebrew today. They really knew this material, and then they advanced uh, far beyond that. And you look, we've talked about the Granville Sharp rule. Granville Sharp was an autodidact. That means he was self-taught in the language, and he surpassed many of his peers in his knowledge and understanding of Greek. There were just these phenomenal scholars produced in the 19th century. And so one of them was, was a, a J.B. Lightfoot, wrote a number of commentaries, commentaries on Philippians, commentaries on Colossians. And in both of those books, you have the use of the word epinosis. Now, these are prison epistles, okay? That's going to be important to distinguish in a minute. And he says the compound epinosis, it's got a preposition epi, and it's attached to the root gnosis. So that preposition should be doing something to the root word gnosis. It's adding some dimension to it. So he says the compound epinosis is an advance upon gnosis. In other words, he's saying there's a clear difference between the meaning of epinosis and the word gnosis. It denotes a larger, more thorough knowledge. Hence also epinosis is used especially of the knowledge of God and of Christ as being the perfection of knowledge. So that's, that's Lightfoot's view. But Lightfoot was critiqued by another brilliant scholar during that time, another uh, bishop by the name of J. Armitage Robinson. Now, when I was in seminary, you know, I had Lightfoot, got Lightfoot's commentaries, and we'd look at those. And there's so many advances in commentaries and the understanding of language from the late eighteen, late nineteen hundred, excuse me, late eighteen hundreds to the late nineteen hundreds. And but Robinson's commentary on Ephesians was one of the. If you're going to have five commentaries on Ephesians, one of them better be Robinson's. I mean, this guy's just brilliant in the Greek. Does that mean I, we agree with everything that he says in terms of interpretation? Not necessarily, but he was brilliant in understanding the grammar and the syntax. And he said that epinosis is different from just a different kind of knowledge or an advanced knowledge. He says that preposition epi means that it is knowledge directed towards an object, perceiving, discerning, and recognizing. Now, actually, as you think about these two things, they're not that mutually contradictory. They're not, uh, th- you can say that, well, there's a sense in which that fuller knowledge is the, re- is the result of the fact that this is a knowledge that, that really is focused on the object of the knowledge and perceiving and dis- discerning that. And what I've learned over the years is a lot of times in theology, when you have people sort of pick up and say, okay, it's either this or that, that sometimes there's elements of both that if you can, can put it together, you can, you can advance by saying there's some aspects of both that are true. Let's put that together instead of, of just saying it's either one or the, or, or the other. Now, Robinson went on to say the preposition, see, the way... Uh, Lightfoot took the preposition was he made it intensive, the epi. He said that's got an intensive sense, so it makes it a more intense knowledge. But Robinson says, well, it's more directive. 
Now, you tell me what the difference is between intensive and directive. You know, I think it's a little bit of both. But we'll, we'll see that in a minute. He says, it prepares us to expect the limitation of the verb to a particular object. So when the word is used, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's focusing the content of that epinosis on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, advancing in that relationship. That's what he's saying. It's, it's more focused in the particular context. He says, thus, gnosgain, which is the verb for, for uh, gnosis, means to know in the fullest sense that be given to the word knowledge. I th- you know, as, it, as the knowledge, as our understanding of these words has developed, that might not be accepted today, but that's where the debate was. So he goes on to say, epigenoskein directs attention to some particular point in regard to which knowledge is affirmed. Now, to know something, you have to understand it. I've heard people come out of Bible class and say, well, you know, I agree with that. And I say, well, tell me what it means. What did I say? And they give it back to me, and it's like, not, not only did you not understand it, you understood it 180 degrees opposite from what I said. And I don't know if that's your fault or my fault, but it's funny how people say, well, I heard you say X, Y, or Z, and I'm cringing. Okay, so you took a vacation in the middle of the sentence. Um, so that's what you, to know something, you have to understand it. And we understand things more and more as we go along. It's incremental. So we understand it, and then as we apply what we understand, in my opinion, that's when it sort of makes this transition from, from gnosis to epinosis. What we're going to see is because it's directed towards something, it's more applicational. That's one of the things that, that, that we see. I've read, till I'm crazy, different word studies and work that's done in the, last, in the last 30 years on this. There were some debates between some people back in the 70s, and there were some scholarly articles written on the 70s that basically, would, if those people had known those positions, it would have changed what they said on the basis of what was being published at the time, but usually by, uh, an article is published in some obscure New Testament exegesis magazine. Back then, you didn't have things showing up on the Internet and on the web and in Lagos within 24 hours. It was maybe two years before it showed up in a periodical index in the library, and you had to go through and wade through all those manual things in order to find uh, articles. So it took time for published articles to really begin to filter down and have an impact. Anyway, so so uh, Robinson says, so far then as we're able to distinguish between gnosis and epinosis, we may say that gnosis is the wider word and expresses knowledge in the fullest sense, which would be in the sense of information. Epinosis is knowledge directed toward a particular object perceiving, discerning, and recognizing, but it is not knowledge in the abstract. That's epinosis. What he's saying is, is that, that it's, epinosis is targeted knowledge which is directed towards a, a fuller understanding of the concept so it can be applied. <clears throat> and Honer, Dr. Honer, I mentioned him before on Sunday morning in Ephesians, 
uh, he was the head of the doctoral department uh, and the doctoral program at Dallas, and he was also the head of the Greek department for many years and taught Ephesians, exegetical classes on Ephesians for about 40 years and wrote one of the finest commentaries. And he says regarding the use of epinosis in Ephesians 1.17, it's to know God intimately. So he brings in this fact that epinosis has the idea of a more intimate knowledge of something. It's not just the uh, awareness of knowledge in the abstract. It's not just knowledge of facts and data, but but there's a, a deeper, more intimate, more targeted, more applicational sense to that particular uh, that particular word. So things do move from gnosis in one sense in some passages. Uh, to gnosis in other passages. Now, there's basically three views that have come out on this. One view was a view that comes out if you have ever, I've referenced it, and others you've heard have referenced it. There's a 10-volume work called The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament edited by Gerhard Kittel. And the articles on all these different Greek words were all written by different German scholars, most of whom do not believe in inerrancy, infallibility, substitutionary atonement of Christ, the, the deity of Christ, uh, the in, uh, literal miracles. They're all a bunch of classic liberal theologians. And one of the worst was a guy named Rudolf uh, Bultmann. And Bultmann, I, I, I would be surprised if Bultmann's in, in heaven. And if a lot of these guys even understood the gospel, okay, but they are... Uh, German scholars are known for their ability to get down into the, the details and the uh, micro-information and do good work on, on words, but words ultimately have to be interpreted in a context. <clears throat> and uh, he wrote in the in TDNT. Now, something that, that I th- think is also interesting is this is edited by Gerhard Kittel. Kittle was a, in fact, when I was in seminary, I had the second edition of the of the Biblia Hebraica, which was edited by Kittle. He was a Hebraist. It's interesting because the guy was a member of the Nazi party in Germany, and he was a rank anti-Semitic. And when an American scholar named Jeffrey Bromley translated that 10-volume work of Kittle into English, uh, he had to heavily edit out all of the anti-Semitism and ugly, horrible things that Kittle put in there. Just something most people aren't aware of. Most guys who are pastors and using these tools, they don't know stuff like this. I mean, this is a kind of... I wish somebody would write a book like this on all these different tools we use, but it's just stuff you sort of pick up along the way as you hear different people speak and read different articles, and there's no one place you can go and find all this stuff out. You just sort of have to spend a lifetime studying and listening and hearing. So uh, Bultmann, uh, probably, I don't know for sure, but I mean, he, you know, he's writing it. Most of these guys were probably anti-Semitic. They're writing in German in Germany in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and, and Germany was just rank with anti-Semitism. So everything they say... I've learned you have to be able to document and prove it somewhere else. So that's his view was that there's absolutely no difference between these words. Then you had a second view that epinosis is a mature or complete knowledge, a fuller or riper 
more minute knowledge, more spiritual knowledge. And that was really Lightfoot's view. And that was dominant. But Lightfoot's not the only one in that camp. There's another series of commentaries on the New Testament by another Greek scholar named Henry Alford, one of the first sets that I bought before I went to seminary. And he said that epinosis means a mature knowledge. And um, then Plummer, another uh, 19th to 20th century scholar, says that epinosis means a fuller, riper, more minute knowledge. So you see that that this is one school of thought. So if you were studying under some pastor who was influenced by those guys, or that's who he read, that would be the information you would you would get. Uh, Lightfoot sort of changes that a little bit, and um, uh, he's the one who emphasizes that it is it, it is a completely different kind of of knowledge, and that was very influential, and that's what filtered its way out in lots and lots uh, of different commentaries, and so. Um, you have to understand this kind of background when you're working through word, word studies. So let's look, just look at how these things are used. When Paul uses this word epinosis, it occurs three times in Romans. Now Romans is written in his second, after the second missionary, second missionary journey. And so Romans is somewhat early. And it has a, we'll see here, here are the Romans passages, Romans one twenty eight, Romans 3.20, and Romans 10.2. And that's used very differently from the way he uses it in the later prison epistles when Paul's in prison in Rome, which was probably some 10 to 15 years later. And so then you have uh, its use in these prison epistles, that's Colossians, Ephesians, um, Philippians, and Philemon. And there it ha- it's used in a different way than he used in Romans completely. And then you have the pastoral epistles, and it's used in a completely different way there. And to go into like Ephesians or Colossians and see how Paul uses gnosis and epinosis and come to your conclusions, they may be accurate, and then to apply that to how it's used in, in 1 Timothy or how it's used in Romans is, is just an uh, etymological fallacy. So let's just look at this a minute. Romans one twenty eight, and even as they, that is these unbelievers who are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, and even as they did not like to retain God in their epinosis. See, their epinosis is not talking about some kind of spiritual knowledge. It's, it's just talking probably about more along the lines of their, uh, of their full, un, full understanding. Uh, it's pagan. So that's the idea there. So God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Then Romans 3.20. So there it's, it's a knowledge that is absent from God. Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So that again isn't talking about a spiritual knowledge. That's talking about uh, that's using epinosis almost as a synonym for knowledge. It's to understand what sin is. And then Romans 10.2, where Paul's writing about God's plan for the Jews in the future, for Israel, 
And uh, Paul says, for I bear them witness that they, that is these Jews, have a zeal for God. The Pharisees, they have a, they're zealous for God. They're legalists and they have rejected God. They're wrong, but they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So there he uses epinosis in a different way than he used it in Romans one twenty-eight and Romans Romans 3.20. It's a, uh, and so we see that's, that's different. Then we move uh, a little farther into into uh, Colossians, Colossians one nine and one ten. Now this is in Paul's opening prayer at the beginning of his epistle to the uh, Colossians, and he prays that his readers will be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So epinosis here is related to God's will. That's, that's his knowing what? Knowing God's will. And it's characterized by wisdom and spiritual understanding. So here it's clearly using epinosis in an elevated spiritual sense that is related to maturity. That you may, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, See, that sounds very similar to 2 Peter uh, 1.8, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the knowledge here is what's the object of the noun knowledge? It's knowledge about God. And it's something that increases. And so this is something that is positive as a result of spiritual, uh, spiritual growth. In... Um, Maybe I left it out of the slide. Another verse is Colossians 2.2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to, so it's a goal, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, to the understanding the mystery doctrine in the New Testament. So it's an advance, advance in knowledge uh, the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So this is related to Christ's mission as the Redeemer and the head of the church, which is in the context of Colossians chapter 1. So it's this advanced spiritual knowledge. And then we have Colossians 3.10. They put on the new man who is renewed in epinosis knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So it's related to this renewal which is tied to spiritual growth and spiritual advance. That's in Colossians 3.10. Then we look at the, some of these are parallel in Ephesians 1.17 and Ephesians 4.13. Ephesians 1.17, we've studied in our Ephesians series, Paul's prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So this is talking about the Holy Spirit who is the source of wisdom and revelation from God in the knowledge of him, in the sphere of the epinosis of God. So it's not just gnosis, not just, not just information or theoretical knowledge, but it is a more intimate, targeted knowledge that is tied to by the use of epinosis tied to application. 
Ephesians 4.13 says, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge, not just gnosis, but this is a more targeted, intimate knowledge of the Son of God, and it's tied to maturity, to a perfect man. And the word teleos there for perfect is a word that indicates maturity to a mature man. So here we see epinosis tied specifically to a more intimate relationship with God, a more targeted understanding of who God is, and it is connected to spiritual maturity. And then we come to Philippians 1.9, where again Paul uses it in a prayer very similar to the Colossians and Ephesians context. It says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So not, epinosis is related to un, not just understanding, but application of that in discernment. Now, when we were studying in the previous section in verses um, six to six, was it five, six, and seven? In Second Peter, it talks about uh, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, moral excellence, to virtue knowledge, um, and that's gnosis because that's the foundation for any other application or targeted knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness or spiritual maturity, uh, brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness, love. So you, this is connected to love is the evidence, John 13, 34, and 35, of the Christian. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's talking about an external evidence that people can see see in your life. So when we when our love when we're growing in Christ our love abounds more and more in the sphere of knowledge epinosis and all discernment so again this epinosis is used in relation to discernment understanding wisdom this is all advancing spiritually mature knowledge Philemon 6 that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the Translated the New King James acknowledgement, it's epinosis. It just should be translated by the knowledge of every good thing. So the object here is not of God. The object is not of Christ. It's the object of every every good thing, That's what it, which is good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord, which is in you in Christ Jesus. So what we see in the prison epistles is that that epinosis is used in this more directive, spiritually mature sense of knowledge moving beyond just information and theoretical knowledge and information. And that's what comes because the believer is walking by the Spirit and because the Word of God is growing and producing fruit in a person's life. Now we're going to shift to the pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles, First Timothy is written while Paul is in prison uh, the first time in Rome, it's not classified with one of the prison epistles. And later, Second Timothy is written when he's in prison the second time, and Titus is probably written in between the two. But what, what's interesting in the pastoral epistles, it's always knowledge of truth. What is truth? Jesus said to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. So the epinosis is tied to truth all the way through here. So it's, a, it's related to the content of Scripture that is the basis for our, our spiritual growth, our spiritual life, and our sanctification. 1 Timothy 2.4, who desires, that is God the Father, desires all men to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's not just an understanding of salvation, though it's tied to that fundamentally in this passage to be saved, but it goes beyond just simply understanding the gospel and being being justified. 1 Timothy 2.25, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps... Uh, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And those in opposition might be other believers or it might be unbelievers so that they can know epinosis, know the truth. Second Timothy 3, 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you can learn a lot of facts and you learn a lot of information, but it's not related to epinosis, knowledge of the truth. And then Titus 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So this is a knowledge of Scripture which is consistent with Eusebia, which I interpret as spiritual life, to be like God, to be uh, have that reverence and fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge according to uh, Proverbs. So let's have a conclusion here. Epinosis is generally more specific than gnosis, at least in many, many of its occurrences. And it is a, uh, a targeted knowledge. So uh, in terms of the debate, just to make a couple of points here, Robinson's position is really stronger than Lightfoot's position. Now, you don't need to get into all of those details, but basically what he's saying is that what the epi does is it makes, it's, it's, he's, in his words, it's like a built-in arrow. It targets the knowledge in a specific direction in terms of the object, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of truth. And so it, uh, but that is good as far as it goes, but even his view is somewhat, uh, somewhat lacking. Uh, second thing we need to remember is no definition or use of epinosis fits every usage of the word. You have to look at the context each time to understand what it is, what is it is talking about. And so it's different in Romans. It has different associations in the past, in the uh, prison epistles, and it's always related to truth in the uh, pris- uh, in, in the pastoral epistles. So you have these three different emphases, so it has different nuances uh, at different times. The cognate verb to epignosis is epigenosco, and it's used 42 times, uh, over twice as much as epignosis. And it's spread out pretty much in, in the Gospels, but it has a variety of meanings. It, it can mean just to know information, it can come to a realization of the truth of something. It can mean to learn something or to find out something, or it can have a more advanced targeted sense. So you just can't take it and always factor in the same meaning in every in every passage. Uh, a third observation is that this part that Robinson emphasizes, there's this directive force. And perhaps a better word that some people have suggested for that is not directive, but application. So epinosis is really related to being able to move from that theoretical or abstract information 
where you now, it is comprehended, it is understood, it's been the result of meditation, and I'm talking about how it's used in the, in the prison, I mean, yeah, the prison epistles. And now it has a more applicational force in it. So it, it's definitely related to application. One of the things that I thought was interesting in reading this was there's a German commentator wrote a two-volume work uh, called, translated into English, called Word Studies in the New Testament. His name was Johannes Bingel. And when he studied this word, he connected it to having confessed sin. So you've got Bingel, you've got all these different people who are bringing out different things that they see from epinosis in different contexts. But it doesn't always emphasize all of those things, but it ties many of these things together. Uh, one writer in writing about, about uh, epinosis in Second Peter emphasizes the fact that this is related to applicational knowledge. So in conclusion, as I tied this together, just thinking about this, well, what does all this mean? We've gone through all this data. Let's just summarize it. First of all, epinosis seems to be in the arena of somebody who's walking by the Spirit. That means there's been cleansing from sin. Uh, that's what we see here in Second in Peter. Uh, it's a, it, it is somebody who's walking by the Spirit where certain character transformations are taking place based on this this knowledge. Second thing we, we can see that comes across, especially in the prison epistles and pastoral epistles, because it's the word of truth, it's the foundation for spiritual growth. The, it is the knowledge of truth, rather. The knowledge, the epinosis knowledge of truth, and, and as Christ prayed, we are sanctified by truth. So it has a significance in its foundation for spiritual growth. And then third, it has an applicational force. It's directed towards specific biblical truth that is applied in a specific, uh, specific direction. Now what's interesting is as we have seen, I mean, you just can't imagine what's happened as a result of using computers for language analysis in the last 30 years. And that holds true for biblical, biblical knowledge. And just to go through the literature on this now is, is just, just phenomenal. So just as you see these changes that have taken place in this matured knowledge of different words, you see that here. But I think the fundamental way in which many of us have understood this, that epinosis is in some sense emphasizing the fact that we have to have a more mature understanding of the basic information, that that matured understanding is directed towards application, and that that matured understanding is a result of walking by the Spirit holds true. It's not something automatic, though. It's not like, well, I heard it, and so I believe it, and so now it's epinosis. Uh, it's much more complex. I mean, it's much more dynamic than that. It's learning it. It's thinking about it. And this week you get maybe one very thin layer. And next week, it, next month, maybe it's another thin layer. Uh, 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 that each time you learn something, it sort of gets plugged in, and you think about it more, and you grow and this just reminds us 
that we have to be spending a lot of time reflecting upon what the Scripture says in our lives and what we're learning in the Word. We have to be reminded of these things all the time because the default position of our life is to go with the sin nature. Maybe you haven't realized that yet or you don't want to admit it yet, but that's, that's our default position is when we're not walking by the Spirit, we default to walking according to the flesh. And so we constantly have to be focusing our mind on knowledge, the facts, the information of Scripture, and then the application of that. And, of course, all of that takes place within what we've studied the last three lessons in terms of our, of our walk by the Spirit. So I hope that hasn't muddied the water too much. Uh, it, it's, it's a good clarification and understanding of what these words mean and to avoid say, thinking, oh, it always means this, when it not necessarily so. These are words, and words are dynamic, and words are used in a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts. Father, thanks for this opportunity to study through these things and to be reminded that uh, the spiritual life is based on knowledge. It's based on information. It's based on facts. It's based on understanding how these facts relate and correlate. And because everything in life is spiritual, to really truly understand and target this this information in terms of application and spiritual growth means that God the Holy Spirit has to be involved in our process of walking by the Spirit and help us to understand this and not minimize knowledge and not uh, reduce or hold back on the time in which we read, study, reflect on the Bible, listen to good Bible teaching. All of that is absolutely necessary on a day-by-day basis. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.